Okay, good morning. If you'd like to uh, turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke and chapter 22. Continuing our um, series today, really I suppose on the Easter story, the events leading up to and immediately after uh, the cross. And so a few weeks ago it was now, we looked at the early part of chapter 22 in Luke, um, particularly focused on the Last Supper And we began to look then at why was it that Jesus went to the cross? Why was it that Jesus died? Uh, We also saw a number of reactions, how people were responding to Jesus at that time. We saw overall um, that Jesus was uh, going to the cross to fulfill the will of his father. It wasn't just the, the will of evil people around him who wanted to do away with him. Actually, God had plans and purposes that far exceeded all of that. And so Jesus went willingly to the cross. Um to suffer and to die uh, with purposes in mind. We began to look at that. We began to consider the the significance of the Passover, that in dying on the cross, Jesus was dying as the Lamb of God who would take away our sins, who would rescue us from judgment. Um, We're going to look now, at beginning in Luke chapter 22, verse 39 onwards. Let's pick up the story there, and then we're going to consider again, how do we understand Jesus' death? Why, Why is it that Jesus went to the cross? So let's read from verse 39 of Luke 22. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the uh, chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him. Am I leading a rebellion that you've come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. But when they'd kindled the fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. He denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I'm not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, 
the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. As we noted last time when we were in Luke, um, there, are really, there are two plans that are um, gathering pace. One plan is the plan of destruction, the plan that evil men have to kill Jesus. And so Judas has betrayed him now. Uh, Jesus has gone to the, um, the, the Mount of Olives. We know from elsewhere that it's the Garden of Gethsemane. And whilst there, Judas arrives with a band and Judas betrays him. He is taken away, he's seized, and his trial, as it were, uh, begins. Guards during the night are mocking him. So the events that we've read today are um, what happens the night before uh, Jesus was crucified. Last time we looked at the evening, focused around uh, the Last Supper. Um, Today, and perhaps on other occasions as well, we're going to focus on... uh, what happens during the night. And again, with this in mind, how do we understand Jesus' death? Why did Jesus go to the cross? The reason we might spend more than just one occasion in this passage is there's not just one answer to that question. If you imagine the most priceless gem or diamond right before us now, uh, if we stood back overall, we'd see that it was totally glorious light was coming in and kind of coming out from a variety of angles we could see uh, this was a perfect and a precious stone but it's like each diamond has a number of facets a number of sides that have been carefully honed and refined all of them bring out something of the of the glory of that diamond it's not just a rough stone it's been polished and honed and refined and as it were we could look at any number of those facets, any number of those reasons. And that's the case now as we, as we head towards this. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Well, there's not just one answer. We are going to spend this morning looking at just one answer. And then we'll go on to look at other answers to that question on other occasions as well. So the facet, if you like, the, the answer to that question that we're going to look at today is this. Jesus went to the cross in order to be our example, to be our prime example, to be a perfect example. We need an example to follow. We have, for all of us who are following Jesus, as now as his disciples today, in the 21st century, we have a massive call on our life. Paul, when he writes the Ephesians, says this in uh, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. We've got a massive call in our lives to be imitators of God. And then Peter, when he writes in 1 Peter 1, draws out something similar, which we can't dilute this down. 1 Peter 1, um, let's read from verse 13. 1 Peter 1, verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, 
But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. There is the plan and purpose of God, we could say. God wants us to be holy. God wants us to be Christ-like. To be, to be a Christian means to be a little Christ, someone who is following Jesus, someone who is uh, de- determining to, to follow his example in life. So how do, we, how do we do that? How do we, people on earth, imitate a holy God who is in heaven? Well, God sent his own son. God came himself Emmanuel, God with us, to be our perfect example of how to live, demonstrating total holiness in life, total perfection. Everything good is seen in Jesus, and nothing bad is seen in him at all. And so as we look through the verses that we read earlier on, there are any number of ways in which Jesus demonstrates an absolutely remarkable example as he draws close to the cross. We see that right from the outset, verse 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. We know from slightly earlier that he did go out there as usual, and there was purpose in so doing. At the end of chapter 21 of Luke, it says, Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple, in verse 37, and each evening he went out to spend a night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. He was going out there, as it were, to kind of recuperate, to get away from the crowd. We know that from other occasions, he'd often look to retreat from the crowd, to get up often on a mountain, to get alone, maybe with his disciples with him, so that he could seek God and so he could pray, so he could spend time with his heavenly Father. And so what we find here is Jesus knows the cross is coming. Jesus now knows that he's been betrayed. Jesus knows, as he says later on, Um, in verse 53, that the hour of darkness is coming. He's about to be betrayed into the hands of men who are going to kill him. What do we find Jesus doing then? This isn't Jesus running and hiding, looking to hope to avoid arrest, looking to, to escape from that destiny. No, he's going out as usual to the Mount of Olives. He's going out there, as it happens, to pray to his heavenly Father. He's going out there knowing that Judas knows what his habit is. Judas knows where he's likely to be. And Jesus goes out there. Why? Well, he's going to the place of prayer. He's going to seek his heavenly Father. Even in a moment of intense anguish, anticipating the pain and suffering of the cross, in a moment of developing crisis, Jesus turns towards his heavenly Father He doesn't turn away. And so there we have it. Jesus demonstrating a potent prayer life. The disciples can't can't live with that. They fall asleep. Jesus is demonstrating um, a perfect example of someone who prays to their Heavenly Father. As his arrest takes place then, he he, he demonstrates another remarkable aspect of handling conflict. This banned approach to arrest him. How does he respond in this situation? Does he fight fire with fire? Does he look to retaliate? Well, no. We even see that rather than uh, fight fire with fire, rather than meet kind of force with force, 
he's showing incredible love towards his enemies. And so even as one strikes his ear, uh, even as um, one of his disciples cuts the ear of someone who's attempting to arrest him, the compassionate saviour reaches out even to the one who, who has come to arrest him and do him harm and reaches out to heal his ear. Uh, a detail that only, uh, as it were, Luke records. Luke particularly wants to bring out that even in the most hostile of situations, we find Jesus being utterly compassionate, uh, not at all looking to, uh, to retaliate, to escape God's plan, or to harm other people. And so overall we see this, that in all situations, at all times, Jesus is setting us an example of someone who is fully trusting God. Trusting God even though he's being rejected by the leaders of the nation who should be accepting and worshipping him. Trusting in God even though his disciples um, are about to desert him. And trusting God even though Peter is about to deny him three times. Jesus will go to the cross and he will go to the cross completely alone. With no one standing with him. All, as it were, rejecting him or one way or another uh, deserting him in his hour of greatest need. That's what we read of here. As the hour of darkness comes, Jesus is our amazing example of someone who trusts in God at all times. So, firstly, in light of this, who are you imitating at the moment? Who are we imitating? Who is your hero? I had a number of heroes as I was, um, as I was growing up. Um, one of them, uh, plastered across my bedroom wall, uh, was Nigel Mansell. And um, he, he was really, for a certain time in my life, uh, pretty much all that mattered. Um, I kind of overlooked the fact uh, that he had eyebrows the size of sausages, um, and that when he spoke, he sounded a bit dull. Uh, all that mattered was he drove fast cars, and he drove them really fast, and he won races. And for me, that was an example of, of kind of bravery um, and courage and uh, just manliness in every way. And so he was, for me, someone I thought, yes, for now, what an example. What a, what a hero. Um, later on in, uh, in school life... Um, I, I hope I wasn't a teacher's pet, but sometimes maybe I was. And it might be slightly sad to admit that um, at one time, one of my teachers was, was hero-like to me. Um, intensely intelligent, but with it a kind of a sharp wit, kind of related w- well with us, kind of what inspired him inspired us. So he kind of exuded enthusiasm for his subjects. It kind of rubbed off on us, slightly eccentric, but nevertheless, someone I thought, you've got something, and you impress me, and maybe in a small measure, because you're still my teacher, and you are slightly weird, I would like you, I'd li- you know, I'm going to imitate you, I'd like to imitate you in some ways, and I have to say, in that example in particular, I came to be thoroughly disappointed, I can recall, um, going into school to get my, my results, this was the last time I was going to go into school, I got my results, and um, 
And later on, with a group of friends from school, bumped into this teacher uh, on the bus. Or it might have been on a train. Bumped into him on the train. And so I got into a chat with him. And all that had impressed me started to evaporate in front of my eyes. He was no less intelligent. He was no less witty than I knew him to be. And no less enthusiastic on his subject. But, as it were, the closer I got, uh, the smaller he became. He started making comments about other teachers in school. Started to, to be boastful and put other people down. I thought, oh, I thought at some level you would be worth imitating. I realise now, oh, there, there are flaws here in your, uh, in your character. Um, someone else has, has told a story, um, a preacher from years ago, of how they had the opportunity of getting close to, uh, to their favourite sports star, and um, who was um, excellent in both rugby and cricket and played to county and national standard, uh, gathered all the press cuttings, posters on the wall, job lots, here's my hero. And lo and behold, as he got to know him, uh, in fact, it's he that coined the phrase, the nearer I got, the smaller he became. But then he turns that around and says, of Jesus, the nearer I get to Jesus, the bigger he becomes. And as we go through um, the events leading up to the cross and immediately after, I think we'll find that Jesus gets bigger in our appreciation of him. How he handled himself in an hour of darkness, how he handled himself when he was completely alone. How he handled himself in all of the, as this horrible, horrendous plan started to unfold and he draws nearer to his death. So the question was, I laid out there, who are you imitating? Who is your hero? And particularly, um, you know, I said for myself when I was young, there were a number of people that perhaps at different times um, I looked to, I wanted to emulate, so I was impressed by, ultimately disappointed. Who are you? If you're a young person here, teenager or younger, have you got people that you particularly uh, look up to? that you would particularly like to be like? In which case, are you making good choices? Or are you making ones that would lead you further away from Jesus? Are you making choices in who you follow that will lead you towards Jesus? Or decisions that will lead you away? Paul is able to say, imitate me as I imitate the Lord, or follow me as I follow the Lord. You won't find on the earth any perfect examples of how to live your life. But you will find people who are um, able to demonstrate wisdom in the, in the lives that they lead. And in so doing, they're, they're people who've got relationship with Jesus who will also help you to follow Jesus. So are you making good decisions? Or are you imitating people who actually, the nearer you get really, are just more likely to disappoint And like I say, as we get on in the story here, uh, building up into Easter, we'll see more and more how mightily impressive Jesus is. What an excellent example he is for us. It's important, however, that we don't leave it there. There A problem could arise here if we only focused, uh, as it were, on on this, uh, this side of the gem, 
this reason for Jesus dying. Jesus died to set us an example. We could then just get into a very simple but slightly flawed reasoning. Jesus was good, so let's be good as well. And sometimes that can be how we, um, we present the gospel or we present Jesus or we present stories in the Bible um, to the very kind of youngest children. This is what so-and-so was like. He was bad, so we know not to be like him. This is what Jesus was like, or this was what David was like, or this was what Moses was like, or uh, this was what um, Paul was like. And they made good choices. They did well. And so, therefore, we make the decision to be like that. It's, it's a bit flawed, as though all we need to know is a bit of information, and then we've got the power to make right decisions. We've got the power to... Uh, to be kind of sensible and holy people. Yeah, because the Bible says, you know, imitate God. Well, I'm going to make it my aim then to imitate God. When we attempt to do that, we'll realize that actually we are uh, limited in our ability to do so. The gospel is more than just be good because Jesus was good. Jesus wasn't just saying, here's how to live a good life, follow me. Jesus came and went to the cross, not just so that we could have a bit of information to help us be good, how to live a good life. Jesus went to the cross in order to give us a new life that we couldn't achieve for ourselves. We see that in the disciples. The disciples have spent three years with Jesus, three years observing what Jesus was like, how he went to pray, how he'd go up to the mountainside to pray. Observe Jesus for three years, how he interacted with people, how he looked to meet other people's needs, often before his own healing and teaching, when actually there would be times when probably he would look, uh, or he he knew there was also a need to to rest. He got away to be with his heavenly father, but he also looked to bless other people. The, The disciples had seen his wonderful example for three years. So what do we see here of the disciples? Have they learnt yet to imitate Jesus in every way? Are they little Christians? Are they little Christs doing exactly what he would do? Have they got their bracelet on saying, what would Jesus do? Well, Jesus would never need repent for his sins, so that would leave us slightly stumped because there are plenty of times when we need to do that. Um, What are the disciples doing? Well, Jesus is praying. The disciples, well, they're sleeping. And again, the way that Luke brings this out is slightly compassionate. He's not... He's not having a massive go at the disciples. He's just saying, this is where it's at. Jesus was praying. The disciples couldn't help but fall asleep. It's Luke who kind of gives an insight into what was going on for them. Well, they were asleep because in verse 45 we discover they were exhausted from sorrow. So Jesus is saying, pray that you'll not fall into temptation. They can't. They fall asleep. They're exhausted from sorrow. They're exhausted with what Jesus has said and with what seems to be happening and that this hour of darkness is developing. Jesus prays, they sleep. Jesus brings peace. So even in this hostile situation where he's being arrested by a mob who've come to, to, to seize him and take him away, just as though he were a, uh, leading a rebellion, just as if he was a terrorist or, uh, or a robber or a criminal or a crook, Jesus is in that hostile situation, and yet, as we've already seen, 
responds with such tenderness to a man who's come to arrest him, whose ear has just been cut off. Going through an hour of such intense darkness, and yet still concerned for other people. Still looking out for other people, and still looking out for people who are opposed to him, who are enemies of him, who are in part responsible for what's about to happen to him. Tremendous compassion, bringing peace into a situation, telling his disciples, no, put the sword away. That's not the way, that's not the path that God set out for me. God has set this out, out this path for me. I'm following this path. Swords and clubs, cutting off ears, meeting fire with fire. That's not the way that the Father is directing me. That's not appropriate, therefore, for you. So we find Jesus bringing peace. We find the disciples wanting to start a fight. And again, perhaps, in some measure, their intentions were good. They were thinking, well, if we, if we can just kind of hold them back for a few moments, perhaps Jesus can, uh, can escape, and, um, and they won't be able to find him again. So perhaps their intentions were good, but nevertheless, we see Jesus bringing peace. Do we see the disciples following that example? No, we see them following their own ideas and wanting to cause a fight. So Jesus prays, they sleep. Jesus brings peace. They want to start a fight. Jesus goes boldly to his death. He doesn't look to escape. He doesn't look to resist the fact that they're about to seize him and take him away. The disciples, the disciples disappear. Peter, um, at the Last Supper, was boldly claiming, I'm ready to to go with you and to prison and to death. We know from the other gospel accounts that um, the other kind of disciples pipe up and say the same sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, that's what we'll do too. Right with you, right behind you. The hour of darkness arrives. The sheep, uh, the shepherd is about to be struck. What do we find happening to the sheep, therefore? Well, they get scattered. They flee. At this moment in time, Jesus has incredible courage. The disciples' courage fails them. Again, uh, Luke brings that out a little bit. It's kind of implicit in the text that Jesus seized um, and they led him away. The disciples, they're not really going to other than Peter. They scatter. Peter goes as far as his good intentions will carry him. He said, no, I'm going to go to prison with you and to death. So Jesus is seized and it says, as we read earlier on, Peter followed at a distance. And so the Peter is, uh, Jesus is being kept in the high priest's house for the night. Others have gathered around in the courtyard. Peter manages to sneak into that. But then people start to look at him closely. First, a servant girl looks at him closely. Oh, this man was with him, she suggests. He denies it. Later on, someone asserts the same thing. And thirdly, someone is far stronger said, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter has gone as far as his good intentions will carry him, but he's in a bit of a no-man's land. He's looking on from a distance. He kind of wants to be with Jesus, but he's not really wanting to be identified with Jesus. He'd rather just kind of observe from a distance, caught in the middle ground. And so as these... um, suggestions or accusations are made that he was with him, he shrinks back from that. 
and is silent. So Jesus goes boldly with courage. That's what they've observed. That's what the disciples have seen all the way through his ministry. That he went up to Jerusalem knowing what was going to happen. Heading into that, leading boldly, leading courageously. A great example for us of how to lead in times of crisis. But the disciples, well, they don't pray, they don't bring peace, and they aren't bold, they aren't courageous. It's like if I'd spent three years um, with some athletic superhero, let's say uh, Usain Bolt, who is the, the fastest man uh, on the planet, uh, who can run 100 metres in literally what seems like the blink of an eye. Let's say that for three years, I spent my life with him. Wherever he went, I went. Whatever he did, I was watching, I was observing. Um, I was studying his, his technique I was kind of seeing his fitness regime, what he ate, and all the rest of it, how he lived, what time he went to bed, um, so that I could see, okay, here's this man's example, amazing. After three years, contrary to appearances, would I be able to run as fast as him? The answer, unfortunately, is probably, as you may have guessed, um, is no. Yeah, some of you are shaking your heads. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> or, yeah, maybe that, it doesn't rock your boat, but let's say three years with, um, with Mr. Rooney, um, observing him, uh, learning skills, watching his ball control, uh, maybe not his mouth control, but certainly watching his control with the ball. Um, would, after, after three years, by observing him, by being up close, would you be able to follow his example? Absolutely. Would you be worth... Hundreds of thousands of pounds a week for a top-flight football club. Again, I apologise, but looking out, I imagine the answer to that is, is no. There's no one here who quite lives up to that. An amazing example for some, these figures would be, would be heroes, but not then kind of heroes in their specific abilities that we could, we could live up to. So it's important that we see that Jesus is our hero. Jesus is the one that we want to follow. You'll be presented, again, if you're, well, whatever age we are, but again, particularly for young, you'll be presented with any number of possible heroes, any possible uh, number of people who, who society would hold out as worthwhile to follow. Try and be like this person. Try and dress like this person. Try and behave like this person. Try and speak like this person. Try and be as athletic and as strong and as able or as intelligent and um, uh, funny as this person. And we can spend so much energy or effort trying to follow people's examples that really lead us nowhere. They don't lead us towards God. They don't lead us to a fulfilling life. They lead us to disappointment. We have here set out an example, our Lord Jesus, who is the ultimate example for us to follow. One to inspire confidence in every situation. For husbands, Jesus is our example of how to be a husband. Because it says in the scriptures that husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. So we see in scripture, yes, here's Jesus, here's our example. If you want to know how to live your life, if you want to know how to be a husband to your wife, look to Jesus. If you're suffering intense persecution, look to Jesus. 
If you're going through a dark hour, how, how can I live a holy life in this situation? Well, we look to Jesus. He is our forerunner. He is our hero. He is the prime example of life. But like the disciples, we encounter our own weakness. Where this leads us to is this, that we need not just Jesus' example, but we need the Holy Spirit. Obviously so. Jesus was fully man. He came therefore and he experienced what we experience. He experienced the full range of emotions that life could throw. He experienced the full um, range of experiences that we might experience ourselves. And so we know, as the writer to the Hebrews says, in Hebrews 4, verse 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. The conclusion then, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Is it not absolutely amazing that God in heaven decided because we needed an example, because we needed someone to follow, someone who would lead us to himself, that God himself decided to come down to then experience what a human life is like. So Jesus, fully God, fully man. Glorious and wonderful mystery, but he went through what we go through and therefore is able to sympathize with every situation, with every emotion that we might go through. And so the conclusion for us is then not, Jesus was good, I must try harder to be good. Jesus is my example, I must try with my own resources to follow that example. The conclusion then is this. No, I approach the throne of grace with confidence so that I may receive mercy and grace Uh, mercy and find grace to help me in my time of need. We need him, and in particular, we need the Holy Spirit. So again, the writer to the, uh, Paul, when he writes to the Ephesians, as we read earlier on, he says at the beginning of chapter 5, be imitators of God, therefore. But he doesn't envisage a, 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 a life of frustration and misery as we attempt and fail, attempt and fail, attempt and fail. It says, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us. Okay, so Christ is our example. But later on, he'll go on to say, in verse um, 18, "Do do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Or as it could be rendered, it could be interpreted. Instead, go on being filled with the Spirit. God doesn't just envisage us being saved and then us having all that we need uh, in ourself 
to, to go on living a life that is wise and pleasing to him. He says, no, go on being filled with the Spirit. We need, therefore, to come to him and say, God, in this situation that I face right now, I need the Holy Spirit to fill me up again. I am inspired and impressed, and I desire to follow the example of Jesus. But, Lord, I know my own limitations. We see Jesus' amazing example in his prayer life, in handling conflict, in trusting God at all times. For us, in our prayer life, we, like the disciples, uh, could come to him and say, Oh, God, teach us how to pray. That's what uh, Luke records in chapter 11. They've observed him, they've observed Jesus praying. So they say right at the beginning, Lord, would you teach us to pray? So he says to them, and it goes on to describe the, 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 the kind of content of prayer. Okay, Jesus first instructs them, well, this is what you can pray. But also right at the end, he acknowledges the fact that we need the Holy Spirit even to help and to enable us to pray. That section there concludes in verse 11 of chapter 11. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? In other words, how do we pray? How do we learn to pray like Jesus? Well, he gives us some pointers in what now is known as the Lord's Prayer. But he also says, you need the Holy Spirit. You need God's Spirit in you to help and enable you to pray. Quite often, quite honestly, there are times when our prayer is, Lord God, help me to want to pray, because right now, I'm just shattered. God enables us to pray. The Spirit enables us to handle conflict. Jesus brings peace. With his disciples, Jesus demonstrates amazing patience at times when one could imagine he would uh, would find that difficult. The Spirit of God given to us is a spirit, the fruit of which includes patience, peace, joy, love, as we read in Galatians 5. So you might be facing a situation of conflict How do I handle this? Or as Jesus was facing a situation of extreme persecution, how do I handle this? We've got to acknowledge that we won't have the resources in ourselves to always react or respond in the right way. If you're anything like me, you can think of occasions where you think, I know I'm reacting in a bad way. I know this isn't good. I know also that right now, It's almost like, I don't want to be good. I don't want to be patient. I've woken up, and today, it's almost like, I've decided to be in a bad mood. And that spells bad news for most people in my vicinity. Um, In those situations, then, we come to God, we say, Lord, first and foremost, would you convict me of my sin? In situations where I might almost think, oh, I, I almost don't care if this is the right thing to do or not. I'm tired, I'm irritable, I'm sinful. God, by your Holy Spirit, come and convict me. God, by your Holy Spirit, come and enable me to produce fruit. This fruit is not just going to come from me. 
I need your Holy Spirit to fill me up again so that I can produce this fruit in situations where otherwise my natural and human tendency would be to do anything but. So the Spirit of God filling, in up, filling us up, enabling us to pray. The Spirit of God enabling us to, to handle conflict, whether that's conflict uh, that we're receiving from the outside, whether that's conflict that we know on the inside. And the Spirit of God, as with Jesus, enabling us to trust God at all times and in all circumstances. When uh, rejection takes place, in situations where you will feel, I'm, I'm alone in this, and I'm not sure that anyone around is necessarily in a position of being able to say, yeah, I've, I've been there, I've done that, um, I've, I've experienced what you're going through, and therefore I'm in a position um, to, to help or to understand. Well, we often the people around us, this might be a situation for some, won't know. But we have a heavenly Father, we have the Lord Jesus, whom we can approach, our wonderful high priest, who's able to sympathize with what's going on in our life. And so that as we look to him, we know that as we, can, we approach him, we say, Lord God, actually, I need your help. I need the Holy Spirit. Again, as we look through um, uh, these passages in Luke We'll go on continuing to answer the question, why did Jesus go to the cross? Why did God the Father send God the Son to the cross to die? There are many highly important reasons that Jesus went to the cross that impact our lives. And in this, mo- this morning, we have looked at just one of those, that Jesus died to be our example so that in every situation we know we've got someone that we are following, imitating. But also within that, so important that we see that we don't get self-reliant, we don't arrive at situations and think, I already have what I need to get through this. That we know that God has given us his Holy Spirit so that in all things we might continue to be transformed from one degree of glory to another. Let's pray.